Good morning. Welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. My name is Andrew Harrison and helping us to start the week this week is Ian Dunt. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Uh, I've been better. You had to think for a bit, didn't you? You had to sort of <laughs> consider for a moment. <laughs> yeah, there was that time I had that extensive surgery that was marginally worse, but yeah. Yeah, it, it's been quite the weekend, hasn't it? And it's probably going to be quite the week. So we have to start by looking at the election fallout at the top of Labour which dominated the weekend, is probably going to dominate the week. The sacking, not sacking of Angela Rayner, right? What does this mean? It looks like a news management mess, incomprehensible briefings, and then on Sunday, suddenly she's getting a promotion and she's going to be shadowing Michael Gove. What happened? Yeah, I mean, her job title now reads like one of those pars in Game of Thrones. It's just like third of her name, broker <laughs> of this, but it just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, it looked, look, I mean, whichever way you shake it down, it looks bad. And, and the story that, as it appears to, to be, is that he basically sort of, you know, said to her, well, I'm going to move you to this position. It's something like shadow health. And she just basically refused. It's quite hard to move people around when they're deputy leader. You may remember the same sort of thing was happening to Corbyn under when Tom Watson was deputy leader, because they've got their own mandate, you know, they've got their own position in the party. Um, and they've got their own power base as well. Um, and she works as the closest thing to a talisman, I think, that the, the former Brexit, the former, thank you, pardon, the former Corbyn guys have. Um, so anyway, look, he failed to move her. She ends up getting something that's sort of a promotion, I guess. Um, and where you end up with, I mean, the real victims then is people like Dodds, who really was probably in Brown, maybe. I mean, really, these are the only sort of victims you really got from that, what ended up being a very, very minor reshuffle. But where you shake out at is... The warfare is now pretty open from her camp and Starmer's camp. I mean, their allies are briefing all over the place. It's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. And that puts you in a pretty dreadful position going forward because suddenly you just get that really warlike tribal factionalism that previously, of course, you had it with all the sort of, you know, disgruntled former Corbyn guys, you know, Diane Abbott's and, and the people online. But now it seems to be happening actually with the deputy leader themselves. And that is, I mean, that's not what you're looking for. No, I mean, depending on who's telling you listen to over the weekend, it was either Rayner effectively ambushed him by beginning to brief that uh, he'd sort of aggressively decided to sack it, or that the whole thing just, just span out of control. What does the fact that Starmer couldn't actually fire her say about his authority and you know his ability to get things done? Because his whole whole raison d'etre is, is, is competence and a grown-up in the room and firmness and a person you can trust. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, the, the timing to me was baffling because look people people have started i think you can already get a trace element of complacency and people um promoting the better results but there were some better results coming out sort of slowly over saturday and sunday i mean you look at the this sort of the mayoral contests i mean labor won 11 out of 13 of those you know tracy braven became the first ever sort of female metro mayor the first ever west yorkshire mayor and um, there were good results in in wales uh, good results in places like Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire, in Worthy, in places like Worthing, you could see sort of failures in the sort of in the Tory front. So I mean, th- there was a story to be told if you were in the business of news management, of of saying, look, you know, these are not a great set of results. We've got a lot more to do, but we're building our support in these areas. And actually, by the way, it wouldn't be so bad to say that stuff because at the moment it does feel if you're an urban voter that Labour is almost kind of fucking embarrassed by your support, you know, that it almost wants mm. your support to go away. And it's like, well, try, you know, try it out if, if you don't have those voters as well. But instead of that story being told, what you got was this just catastrophic internal factional warfare 
eating up the narrative. And that, on a, on a basic level of professionalism, you're like, you're not getting your narrative out. You know, if you read the stuff that you would get from Brown's guys, Gordon Brown's guys, back in the time when they were getting hammered, you know, even when they were getting bad results, they have been just bludgeoning people with a narrative about reducing expectations, setting it in a certain way so that you didn't come out of it the way the Starmer has come out of these elections, just being absolutely savaged. The second part of the strategic failure then is why, why would you go so quickly anyway? You don't even have the results in order to make a proper sort of dispassionate judgment about what you need to change. And you're doing it at the moment when you're at your weakest as a leader. So there's most pushback against his reshuffle. I didn't really think a reshuffle was necessary, but if you're going to do it, get the fucking people in that you want in. Instead, when you look at how weak, how sort of, how superficial really that reshuffle was, you don't get the impression that's what he had. In fact, he, he put more people in. And that's usually a sign that someone is so worried about internal enemies that they think, well, I can't afford to make any more of them. So I can't afford to get rid of people. So I think ultimately, you know, whichever whichever angle you look at these events from, it it don't look good. Uh, what is the kind of objective reason to sack Angela Reyna anyway, uh, even though he didn't manage to do it? I mean, because one of the key things that emerged or the key assumptions that emerged in the elections was that Labour's lost trust and lost contact with, uh, you know, the, the northern working class. So let's fire on our most conspicuous northern working class person who did seem to be in the process of possibly being able to be co-opted into more of a collaborative way of, of doing the Labour Party. I mean, it seems to be just a, a, an ongoing sort of sense of suspicion over briefings. I don't, I don't really believe. And maybe it was, you know, maybe there was that sense that, you know, the, the election faults were down to her. I don't really believe anyone in Starmer's office thought that. I, I certainly haven't. I don't know anyone in Labour that thinks that's the case. But she's responsible for that. And I don't think she's so wonderfully fantastic either. And also we can't just go, you know, there's always this danger of of just falling, plummeting into identity politics, of defining everyone's position by virtue of their accent or, or their identity or whatever. And that, that seems a bit dangerous as well. But I mean, it, it was a pretty baffling decision unless relationship unless the relationship was already pretty damaged i mean but if it was damaged before you know it's it's absolute monstrosity now you see the same i mean you could say the same again for Lisa and Andy. It's just like, you know, it, it doesn't make sense, the position she's in. As foreign, you know, shadow foreign, it is, it is a tran- sort of, it's an invisible position. It shouldn't be, but it is. And she's really good at it, by the way. She makes the, the right judgments regularly. I, I'm, I really admire what she's done there. But it's, it's a fairly invisible position. Why is she there? And yet she stayed there. We didn't get people like Yvette Cooper sort of coming in, Hillary Benn, all of that. I mean, they, they say, you know, apparently that didn't come from Starmer's team anyway. But anyway, they're not coming in. We did lose Annalise Dodds. And again, look, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record on this, but this constant thing of, oh, she didn't cut through, she didn't cut through. It just, it doesn't matter. It, that's not, that's not what the job is of the shadow chancellor. She should be in the background doing the economic work that complements, you know, the, the vision of the party for its, its economic policy for its, and, and of course that plays into the, the politics. I mean, I just find it baffling that she has gone for reasons that were never applied to George Osborne or to Gordon Brown back in the day. It just doesn't make sense. You're saying it's kind of incoherent, but he has just promoted Rachel Reeves and Wes Streeting. The, the kind of the, the Labour centre does seem to be on the rise and that, that you know, purely in positions he's sort of consolidating, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, Wes Streeting has been brought into this sort of child poverty brief. I don't know. I mean, it's a bit of an elevation, but not... I mean, I don't think it's, it's anything sort of substantial in that respect. Rachel Reeves, I have to say, I, I think I probably have a bit less time for them 
than most others. I, I don't see that she is that impressive a performer. Her political judgments before have not been fantastic. I mean, she's well, to, I mean, this could just be me being whatever, because she's, she's well to the right of the kind of positions that I would hold. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a slight movement there. Apparently, you know, he's wanted her there for some time and been unable to do it. If you're going to, t- look, it comes down to this, regardless of where we think we end up with the people themselves. And ultimately, this isn't about the people themselves, by the way. So I think anyway, the whole question of a reshuffle is, is a, a slight distraction. But the thing is, if you're going to take this much pain for it, you might as well get what you want at the end of it. And instead, what we've ended up with is him taking an awful lot of pain for it and not getting what he wanted at the end of it. You mentioned a minute ago the idea that there's complacency creeping in and that, uh, you, know, you know, Labour took 11 out of 13 mayors and, you know, Labour kept Wales and, uh, you know, there have been encouraging movements in votes elsewhere in the country. Didn't the election just kind of reward incumbency in general? I mean, should, should Labour be looking at this and accepting the headlines possibly from unfriendly papers saying what a disaster it is? Oh, because it justifies its sort of national performance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I don't, it's really hard for them. And, you know, we've gone over this a million times, but it's really very, very difficult because they have a very, it's an almost impossible sort of circle to square. Um, and yet, nevertheless, the, the trouble is, I think that they are fundamentally embarrassed by those urban seats. You know, when you look at these mayoral contests, these are predominantly urban areas. You know, you, know, you look at London, Greater Manchester, Liverpool, you know, these are these are places. There's a real danger that Labour is starting to be actually quite complacent and and, and yeah, almost embarrassed by those voters. So I think it doesn't want to make too much of a big deal of it that way. But the thing is, whichever way you break this stuff down, there's still a fucking problem. There's no, you know, there is a trend, and some people kind of jokingly call it the blue wall, which is really just it's nothing to do with that. It's a sprinkling of seats where. You know, young families, typically liberal voter, progressive voters, are being sort of often priced out of cities um, and into suburban areas. And there they're putting at risk Tory majorities in places like Chingford. You saw something a bit like that in Worthing, right? Like, I mean, I my grand used to live in Worthing when I was growing up. You know, it used to be just this incredibly deadening place of just, oh, it was, it was literally God's waiting room. Now you go there now and, and lots of families have sort of, Young families have moved out from Brighton. They can't afford Brighton, so they go to Worthing. And therefore, the political sort of shades are changing there. And and so there's some areas like that, but we need to be clear about that. There are not enough of them for Labour to win without getting back some of the Red Wall, some of the North. It is just there is no electoral map back to power that relies exclusively on those seats. And then there's the other thing we need to mention, which is when the vote goes more progressive in these areas, it is not going all to Labour. It, on the other side, it is all going to the Tories. All of that UKIP vote or the Brexit party vote, you know, that is, is going full scale, wholesale into the Tory party, which explains why they're so strong. In Labour's case, it is splintering among the Lib Dems and increasingly in this election, the Greens. So even where that change takes place, Labour is sharing that vote in a way that the Conservatives are not. Progressive Alliance, Claxon, take a drink. Well, we talk about this quite a bit, but there has to be more specificity about what it is that we mean. I mean, there's different, you know, the the old sort of, the the truism that people used to say about it was, you can't do that explicitly. Like, you cannot just come out and say, we're doing this because voters fucking hate it because they feel that you're taking away their choices. So what you need is a backroom kind of thing. Like, if you saw the way that Blair and um, Ashdown used to work, they worked together 
on attack lines against the Tories. I mean, they worked extensively. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, what are you attacking the Tories on? And then, you know, during the election, night seven, Mandelson shuffled over, we think it was Mandelson, a list of seats to the to the Daily Mirror of saying, look, we're not really going to contest these seats, basically saying to Labour voters in those seats, vote Lib Dem. Now, that was all, it was deep, deep, deep cooperation, but all done away from public view. There's now another view from some people, some people, which says, well, you know what? Fuck it. Why don't, you know, you have this much more expansive, open approach by Labour, you know, Lib Dems, Greens going, no, we're trying things differently this time. Maybe voters don't hate cooperation, you know, as as much as we think they do. Maybe you can make that work as a radical new proposition. Now, my temptation, because I'm fundamentally like small C conservative with this stuff, is to go with the first one, that that has been shown to work before. But when we talk about electoral alliances, there's often... A, a, a lot of confusion as to specifically what it is that people are talking about, what kind of tactical moves they're talking about, what kind of presentational moves they're talking about when they refer to these sort of um, approaches. One more election thing before we move on. Um, Tracy Braben won as the first mayor of West Yorkshire. So there's going to be a by-election in Bartley and Span. Yeah. And Britain-elect aggregated the council vote, which is not kind of, this is not science, but it's nearly science. <laughs> it's it's not science, but it looks like it. Um, and they they have aggregated the, the local election votes. They made it basically thirty nine percent each for Conservative and Labour in Bartley and Spen. So there's going to be a by election, and we're going to be looking at Hartlepool too. And we're going to have to do all this all o- all over again. Is it going to be Groundhog by election, Ian? No, it's a very it's a different seat. But the majority, I think, the majority is about mid three three thousand five hundred or so. Um, so the majority is quite similar, but it is it is a different seat. I mean, that one at the moment that looks like you know the flick of a coin. That mm-hmm. looks like the flick of a coin. To be honest, you know what you would if you were really going to be strategic about it. In the, in the this is so easy to say now, but whatever. If if I'd been Keir Starmer, I think I would have put everything into winning that seat and then aimed the reshuffle for after that. You do need a bit more authority. You don't really want to reshuffle when you're the exact moment you're getting absolutely twatted. And mm-hmm. I think I suspect that is what happened here. And I think the more sensible thing to do is just, it, it is a win. Batley and Spen, I think, is much more winnable than Hartlepool was. You would aim to be winning that and then do the reshuffle. If they're not winning that, we are going to have another wave of horror. Yeah. I'm putting dibs on the headline truly, Batley deeply for uh, future use. It's a fantastic well, any- constituency name, by the way. I've always really liked it. Batley and Spen. It, it sounds yes. like, a, like a kind of meat substitute they'd eat in the 1940s. I was going to say, it sounds like an artisan chocolate brand. <laughs> but I've been to Batley. It's, it's a great place. Before we move on, any thoughts on Sadiq Khan winning London by a slightly tighter margin than expected? I mean, no, it pretty much went the way that we that we expected. It was slightly tighter. I mean, you would want, I suppose, you know, you would want greater signs of of a really thorough London turning away from the Conservatives, you know, in including in, you know, Remain seats, right? You know, these these are Remain seats. That would have voted um, for Bailey in, in some cases, remain areas. I know it's slightly different. So no, look, it's slightly tighter than you would want, but it, it wasn't that tight. It's a pretty unremarkable fight. I still find it incredible that, you know, despite all of this, it is worth mentioning that there is something remarkable about the Conservatives giving up on the notion of cities. You know, on just saying, well, we don't care about we don't, you know, about London. We don't care about Liverpool. It, it is an extraordinary thing. To see them just say, we don't care really about young people or graduates, you know, <laughs> or, or cities. And you just think, what a remarkable fucking thing. And that eventually, look, eventually, in the end, 
it will bite them in the arse. The thing is that it's very easy to say in the end, it's very hard to live through the next 10 years of fucking Tory government. Yeah, I mean, I, London, though, it's not just ignoring it and forgetting about it. It's like London is being set up as the cultural enemy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's like they, are, they, you know, they live in London and are going to run against London. They, li- they live in the fanciest parts of London, take advantage of the fanciest parts of London, and will run against it. And that's the future that we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. But moving on, Scotland. So Sturgeon says there's a mandate for another independence referendum eventually, but not right now. Boris Johnson is saying... Look, a squirrel with his uh, Team UK recovery idea, COVID recovery idea. Presumably this idea of Team UK will be news to Scots and the Welsh who believe that their COVID results are down to their own governments. What do you expect to happen on the Scotland versus England versus Boris Johnson independence front this week? Well, I think we, we've got to... Uh, nothing's gonna, uh, nothing is really happening this week because the, the truth is there's more similarity in Sturgeon and Johnson's position than either of them would care to admit, which is that both of them say there shouldn't be another referendum now. You know, Sturgeon, because she, needs, she knows you can't, you, you've got to get the pandemic out the way and you'll be, you know, criminal and insane to be seen as doing that during the middle of a pandemic. And Johnson, because ultimately, I think in Johnson's view, his main priority is let me just see if I can kick that can down the road so some, another prime minister is responsible for losing Scotland rather than myself. Um, we know what the Tory strategy is at this stage, which is that there kind of really isn't one. Do you remember a few months back, there was some wibbly wobbly stuff with the unit unit, no, the union unit, um, where they sort of- said the unit unit, I got very excited for half a second. <laughs> no, it sounds like a crap Doctor Who villain. Um, there are no crap Doctor Who villains. <laughs> Move on in. So the union unit. The union unit, yeah. So, they, you know, they, they were getting people in, they left, I mean, you know- these transfers of jobs lasted, you know, up to a week. And it was basically being unable to decide between the two approaches, which is, you know, do we kill the SNP with love, which is the, the, good, the sort of Michael Gove? You can tell I can't get any words right because it's before 9am on a Monday morning. Uh, Michael <laughs> Gove sort of technique, you know, let's invite the SNP to cabinet, blah, blah, blah. Um, or do you kill them, you know, with knives, which is the sort of vote leave faction approach, which is, you know, let, let's just, let's just, you know, we've done enough defensive posturing against the SNP, let's just take them on. And they never really settled on one of those strategies. So where they've ended up now is this combination of sort of bullying and mock kindness that just comes across really, really weird. So you have, you know, the approach of saying, well, we're not going to give another referendum. If we have to, we'll take this to court. Although, you know, Michael Gove was prevaricating a bit on that yesterday. On the other hand, you have the money. Now, the money is interesting because this is Westminster sending money to Scotland underneath Hollywood. So it doesn't go through Hollywood to go to the regions. It goes directly to the regions. That's part of this project to remind them, you know, to remind people that this is coming from the UK. It's not coming from, from Scotland, from the Scottish government. So these tactics will continue to play out. I mean, ultimately they're, they're in a delaying game right now. The one thing they cannot fucking do, and I just find it absurd whenever anyone pretends this and Michael Gove was really, I mean, if there was any more besmirching his own reputation that he could conduct, he was managing it yesterday, just pretending that there isn't a mandate. There is a fucking mandate. And I say that as a unionist, but you, you have to be realistic. You have to be just have some basic democratic credibility to you. If parties calling for another referendum get a majority, that is a fucking mandate. They have a majority in the parliament. It's not like in 2017 when Theresa May got a minor, you know, was, was in a minority government with the DUP. She thought, well, I can't continue with Brexit because, you know, I didn't get it just in the Tory party. I have to share with the DUP. It's fucking absurd. So clearly they have a mandate and to claim otherwise is, is, is democratically really quite unconscionable. 
Well, speaking of basic democratic requirements, it's the Queen's Speech tomorrow, Tuesday, and in it there's going to be a requirement for photo ID at general elections when you vote. This seems like the most egregious import from America, a straight-up voter suppression measure. There is no significant voter fraud problem in this country. Are the government even trying to justify this, or are they just doing it? No, they're just doing it. It is exactly as you have just described. It is it is a form of voter suppression. We're seeing other attempts as well, by the way. I mean, you notice, notice the way that Labour did so well in those mayoral contests. I mean, part of that was because when you use a system that is not first past the post, you do not split the progressive vote in the same way as you do under our general election system. So what are the Tories going to do? They're going to get rid of that system of voting. You know, and again, I would look at the way that the boundary reviews will go through. I mean, which is essentially, which will be just gerrymandering. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't have any evidence for that yet. I'm just willing to make that prediction on the basis of every fucking thing that these people do. So, you know, over and over, you see the same technique, which is try to game the election, game the election, even in the ascendant. They just try to fiddle with the rules to make sure that they can keep on winning. I looked around to try and find justification for these moves and any kind of argument in favour of photo ID or ending first past the post. I couldn't find any. Are they, are they even putting anybody up to say this is why this is a good idea? No, they just assume that this is the kind of stuff people don't pay attention to. And they're mostly right. People mostly don't pay attention to it. They're also going to there's, also- there's a few other moves as well. I think they're limiting the number of postal votes someone can hand in at a station. They're putting intimidation of voters as a crime, apparently. I don't know where the fuck this stuff is coming from, unless it's to sort of try and buttress the argument. You know, to try and make it look like there's a bigger problem. Because uh, honestly, there are many problems in this country and that is not one of them. Well, one of the huge standouts is ending fixed-term parliaments, which has been a bit of a dead letter anyway, hasn't it? Exactly. It doesn't, you know, if if that act really made much difference, then we wouldn't have had a general election in 2017 and another one in 2019. (laughs) They shouldn't have been possible, right? And, And they were. So, I mean, ultimately... I don't think that act does much again, but it's just, you know, squeezing out a bit more executive power. It's just a little bit easier for them, for them to do. There's also hints of, um, a planning bill in there. A bit odd with the planning, but I mean, they did have planning plans, which came previously from Dominic Cummings, which actually weren't that foolish. They were, they were quite interesting ideas for, for building more homes. There was a chance of a very big Tory rebellion over those. Uh, We haven't heard much about them for a while. Now it looks like there's more planning stuff coming in the Queen's speech. We know that policing and crime bill, which is essentially the anti-protest bill, uh, which makes it essentially criminal to make any noise while on a protest. That looks like it's going to be in the Queen's speech as well. That hasn't gone away. They just went a bit quiet about it. Um, And we also know there's going to be some sort of retaliation against judicial review. Judicial review is really the ability to take ministers to court. Um, and the, we knew the government attack was coming for some time. They sort of commissioned this um, this review into to what needed to be changed in judicial review. And they came back saying, well, not very much. But now they're just going to try and fucking hack it to pieces anyway. Because, of course, again, it's a challenge to their power. You, I think you can see the theme there, you know, in protest, in judicial review, um, in the way that elections are conducted, in Parliament's control over the election process over and over again. The movements are constantly the expansion of executive power. And also Priti Patel's plans for refugee policy, which the UNHCR says breaks our commitments to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Yeah. And the Law Society says it's a serious threat to the rule of law. So basically, if we're making a prediction, it should be, um, expect probably the most authoritarian Queen speech you've seen in some time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's a Monday and I don't know if anyone's going to get through this podcast first thing on a Monday and just be like, you know what, man, fuck this. I'm going back to bed. So I apologize in advance. Really, we should put some kind of like joke 
at the end of it, like something out of a Christmas cracker to try and cheer people up because I'm aware that this is just a steamroller of shite. Well, thank you for ruining everybody's Monday morning, Ian. <laughs> I haven't been blaming you. me. You've been part of this as well. You can't fucking extricate yourself. <laughs> We're here every Monday destroying your week. Ian, thanks for getting up early and thinking about this horrible stuff. Listeners, <laughs> thank me. you for listening to this horrible stuff. We will get through it together. As you know, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday to Thursday and on Saturday morning as well. We leave Friday free for uh, Oh God, What Now? If you'd like to support us in our valuable work of cheering up the nation, you can back us on Patreon. Search for Patreon Bunker Podcast. There are many wonderful things to be had. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.